Speech by Tony Benn on the Voice of Britain, 1956. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matthew Ward, Newcastle, New South Wales, Australia. With Carl Manchester as George Wiggs MP. Mr. Wedgwood Ben, Bristol, South East. This adjournment debate has been arranged at very short notice, and I should like to pay my personal tribute to the Minister who has agreed to deal with what I think will turn out to be one of the most explosive consequences of the policy we have seen pursued during the last week. I suggest that the House should consider this afternoon as the very first of the many post-mortems we shall have on the events of last week. I think we may now say that the Prime Minister's unhappy military venture has come to a conclusion. A week ago he announced that an ultimatum had been presented to the Egyptian government under which they were obliged to allow British forces to be stationed in Egypt to guarantee the safety of the canal. The position now, as we all know, is that the British government have agreed to a ceasefire and that Nasser controls almost all the canal. Therefore, this is an appropriate moment to look at the events of last week and see what lessons we can learn from those happenings. In that spirit, I wish to refer to the subject of the broadcasts put out by the Voice of Britain. I understand that there was in Cyprus a broadcasting station about the ownership and control of which I am not quite clear, called Shark al-Adna. That station used to broadcast in Arabic to the Middle East, and when Her Majesty's government took over, they renamed broadcasts from that station, the Voice of Britain, and broadcast from it on behalf of the Supreme Allied Command, certainly until today, when no transcripts have come in. The Voice of Britain has been speaking for this country, and we are morally under the necessity to look into those broadcasts to see exactly what has been said. Through the courtesy of the BBC and the generosity of the Foreign Office in making these things available, I have been able to study the transcripts. What I have studied and proposed to reveal to the House now is, I believe, so sensational that it merits a tribunal inquiry to be set up at once to see where responsibility 
for this catalogue of lies, stupidity and folly really rests. I must tell the House also that in doing this I feel bound to compare the broadcasts by the Voice of Britain with the statements made by the Prime Minister in this House. The disparity and discrepancy between the two statements is so great that I feel it my duty to raise it this afternoon, and I have notified the office of the Prime Minister that I propose to do this. May I say, first, that my interest in overseas broadcasting did not begin with the Voice of Britain broadcasts. At one time, for a very short time, in a most undistinguished capacity, I served in the overseas service of the BBC. Since then, I have always taken a great interest in broadcasting because I think it is very important that the true voice of Britain should be heard abroad. Therefore, I begin by saying that my complaint about this whole situation is that it is technically appallingly badly managed. I cannot, of course, now consider the policy which lies behind it. We have debated that and will no doubt do so in future. But the experience of the BBC, which is an experience unrivaled in the world as an organ of stressing the voice of this country, has been built on one very simple thing. It is to tell the truth. Throughout all the years, even during the war when we were broadcasting to Germany and since the war when we were broadcasting behind the Iron Curtain, the BBC Overseas Service has always stuck to the truth. That is why it is accepted and why the chimes of Big Ben are known all over the world in a happy context. If we have a broadcasting station, therefore, and a war breaks out, and we feel that we must broadcast, then we must always stick to the simplest principle of all, to put out the truth. That requires a degree of directive from high authority and proper consideration at every stage of the long and short-term effects of telling lies. The first task of the Voice of Britain was to explain to the Egyptian people exactly why a British ultimatum had been presented to them. I find it very curious that there is no record of the Voice of Britain broadcasting to Israel at any stage since the Prime Minister said that the intention of the ultimatum was to compel both sides to disengage. I think it is very odd, indeed more than odd, that at no stage has a transcript been received of a broadcast directed to the Israeli troops advising them to keep clear of the canal. Be that as it may, let us consider exactly what the position was. I want to quote, first of all, the Prime Minister's own statement to the House, in which he explained, on 30th October, 
as reported in columns 1279 and 1347 of the official report, the reasons for this action. He said, and we all remember the statement, I must tell the House that very grave issues are at stake, and that unless hostilities can quickly be stopped, free passage through the canal will be jeopardised. Moreover, any fighting on the banks of the canal would endanger the ships actually on passage. One of my honourable friends, if not all of us, was intensely suspicious of the Prime Minister's motives. My honourable friend, the member for Sheffield, Brightside, Mr. R. E. Winterbottom, as reported at column 1298 of the official report for the same day, asked the Prime Minister this. Will the Prime Minister give the House an assurance that those troops will be withdrawn as soon as the Israeli-Egyptian clash is over, or temporarily settled, and that the occasion will not be used to keep British troops in the canal zone in furtherance of the dispute between ourselves and the Egyptian government. On that, I want a categorical assurance. Hansard records that the Prime Minister indicated assent, but lest the official reporters should have strayed from their task, I found the exact passage in column 1347, where the Prime Minister said, I want now to deal, if I may, with one or two other points raised. The Honourable Member for Brightside, Mr. R. E. Winterbottom, and one or two other Honourable Members asked whether British troops and other troops will be withdrawn once the hostilities cease. Of course, that will be so, certainly. It is our intention that they shall be withdrawn as soon as possible. The last thing that we want is an enduring commitment of that kind. The last thing. Official Report, 30th October 1956, Volume 558, Chapter 1279-1347. Those are the Prime Minister's words. He utterly repudiated on 30th October the assertion that the canal dispute had anything to do with the movement of the troops. May I remind the House that the Voice of Britain said only two days later, on 2nd November at 12.45 Greenwich Mean Time, the bulletin put out ran as follows. This is the first bulletin addressed to the Egyptian people from the Voice of the Allied Army's Command. O Egyptians, this is the first blow which has befallen you. Why has this befallen you? First, because Abd al-Nasir went mad and seized the Suez Canal, which is of vital importance to the world. Accordingly, the Allies shall continue taking measures with increasing force until peace is restored and the canal is placed above political and national ambitions on the understanding that we are in a position to apply further force to attain our objective and shall do so if necessary. Our fighters and bombers are now flying over you. The strong forces of the Allies intervened only in order to put an end to violence in Egypt and to put the canal under international control. 
There is a direct contradiction between the words of the Supreme Allied Command and those of the Prime Minister, and I do not suggest that either of them can be exonerated. I believe that on these and other issues a committee of inquiry is vital in order to determine why this situation arose. Of course the Prime Minister on 3rd November, whether because he had heard the voice of Britain or had changed his mind, I do not know, came out with it and said, The second point which the Right Honourable Gentleman raised, and with which I want to deal, concerns his question of why we had included the Suez Canal in the second paragraph of our reply. We considered that carefully. The object as I think honourable members will see when they have had time to study the reply, is to show that we shall try to use this situation to deal with all the outstanding problems in the Middle East, and it would be unwise to leave any one of them unresolved. Official Report, 3rd November 1956, Volume 558, Chapter 1867. So, we have the position not only of the voice of Britain flatly contradicting the Prime Minister, but of the Prime Minister contradicting himself. In those circumstances, it must have been quite impossible for those responsible for that broadcasting station to have had any directive at all from London. That sort of thing is technically disastrous. It weakens the appeal of the station and, in this case, revealed the true nature of the aggression to which this country has been committed. I have time to mention only one other major point which has arisen out of a study of Hansard and these transcripts, and that is the question of what sort of operation was this which we were undertaking at that moment. The Prime Minister said that this was a police action, and I quote now, not a Hansard extract, but from the Prime Minister's broadcast, to which I listened, and of which I have the official text. The broadcast was made on the night of Saturday, 3rd November, when the Prime Minister said, The government knew, and they regretted it, that this action would shock and hurt some people. The bombing of military targets and military targets only, it's better to destroy machines on the ground than let them destroy people from the air. We have to think of our troops and of the inhabitants of the towns and villages. Later we find a passage in which he said, All my life I've been a man of peace, working for peace, striving for peace. That was all meant to show to the British people that our attack on Egypt was designed solely to destroy the military establishments and that, of course, humane considerations above all influenced our bomber pilots. But now we come to the broadcast of the Voice of Britain, which began within a very few hours of the Prime Minister coming off the air in this country. He came off the air at 10.15pm on the Saturday and at 05.25 hours on the Sunday, the Voice of Britain began broadcasting to the Egyptian soldiers as follows. Now listen carefully to us. 
you have hidden in small villages. Do you know what this means? It means that we are obliged to bomb you wherever you are. Imagine your villages being bombed. Imagine your wives, children, mothers, fathers and grandfathers escaping from their houses and leaving their property behind. This will happen to you if you hide behind your women in the villages. You are soldiers and duty requires that you defend your villages and not bring destruction upon them. You have nothing with which to defend yourselves. We will find and bomb you wherever you hide. One thing which you can do is to wear civilian clothes and go to your homes to see if any soldiers or tanks are concealed in your villages. Tell them to clear out before we come and destroy these villages. If they do not evacuate, there is no doubt that your villages and homes will be destroyed. Is that police action? Is that the voice of Britain, which has been going out now for the last week or more? Is that technically, politically or morally right? Of course it is not. It produced in my mind a feeling of revulsion which, in my young life, I cannot recall ever having felt before. It is the voice of haw-haw and of Nazi-type brutality. It demands an inquiry. It demands an inquiry for one other reason. In the broadcast on the following day, the people were told, and I quote the transcript of the broadcast of Monday, 5th November, 1652 hours, Greenwich Mean Time. Very soon it will be dark. Soldiers in Port Said, you are in a hopeless situation. Protect your lives. It is not your duty to die for your homeland. Your duty is to live and serve your homeland and return to your families and homes. The previous day they had been told that if they returned to their families and homes as soldiers, their families and homes would be bombed. Is it right for a broadcasting station one day to say to the soldiers, if you go home, we will bomb your mothers, wives and children, and to say to them the next day, go home to your wives and children, it is your duty. This is the character of false news, which is, in itself, a crime. I come now to one final point which, from my point of view, has the most heavily charged emotional undertones of anything I have mentioned. As I said earlier, this radio station was originally a private enterprise Arab station broadcasting to the Arab world until it was taken over. On Saturday, 3rd November, at 11.18 Greenwich Mean Time, I am afraid there is no explanation of this, although I will try to tell the House what I have heard subsequently. The following statement was broadcast. According to the monitoring report, it is called an in-person statement by the director of the former Shark al-Adna station. This is the broadcast. Being the director of the former Shark al-Adna station, I wish it to be known for our listeners in the Arab world that the Arab staff of the station are obliged under the circumstances existing in Cyprus to remain at work. Listeners must understand that while the feelings of the staff are naturally with their Arab brothers, they are no longer free agents. 
there is no question that the director of this station broke in on the microphone himself without the authority of the military and broadcast this appeal from his heart to his own brothers in Egypt who were being at that moment bombed by the British. I rate this message as being quite as tragic as the last messages coming out of Budapest. That man was compelled to broadcast this filthy propaganda to people who were of his own race and family and who were being bombed by the British. Indeed, as soon as this happened, the censorship in Cyprus clamped down and an order was given to newspaper correspondents that the words Voice of Britain were to be put on the stop list. Will my honourable friend ask the government to give an assurance that no bodily harm has come to the man who made that broadcast? My honourable friend has touched on one of the many consequences of this business. I can only say that a newspaper correspondent with whom I have been in touch and who arrived from Cyprus very recently said that a rumour had gone round that there was trouble at the Arab station, that at that moment the military censorship forbade the use of the words Voice of Britain in any cables back home. That total censorship existed and that none of the British newspaper men were allowed to go to see the Voice of Britain station or how it operated. I have said enough to justify a tribunal of inquiry as my honourable friend, the member for Dudley, Mr Whig, urged yesterday in the House. War criminals. I believe that my right honourable and honourable friends will not only put down a motion demanding a tribunal of inquiry into the circumstances, but that if at any time they are in power they will enforce it to see that the people responsible for this are brought to trial are brought to trial for what is clearly a criminal act. Hear, hear. It has done terrible political damage to this country. It is morally wrong, and it is not the voice of Britain. I do not envy the Under Secretary of State who has to reply to this debate. The Foreign Secretary denied responsibility when I raised this matter in the House on Monday. The Minister of Defence was not willing to step in. Now we are to have an answer from the Deputy to the Secretary of State for War. I do not envy him, but there is one course open to him. Either he should repudiate on behalf of Her Majesty's Government the action of these men, although most of them, we know, were under duress imposed by the Government, or else the Honourable Member should take the only course of honour open to him and follow the Minister of State for Foreign Affairs and the Economic Secretary to the Treasury and resign. I feel and I think most people in the country, when they hear this story, will feel that the greatest crime of all is to speak with a false voice in the name of Britain. I conceive that you, Mr Speaker, are in a sense the voice of Britain. You derive your authority from a representative people. It is your job to supervise political change peacefully. It is your job to guarantee liberty of expression and liberty of conscience. And I like to see you, and in what you stand for, the true voice of this country.
I desperately hope that we may soon have here a government who are willing to repudiate these crimes and seek, slowly and painfully, to build up the good name of Britain. End of speech.